So welcome everyone. Uh, today we are uh, back in another episode of the podcast we are working on Avis, um, a podcast that is designed for to share about the AEC industry with all the people that is, um, is it has some interest or they want to know more about what's computational design, what is the new process, the new techniques, the new technology that AEC is bringing to the game. Uh, today we have a um, we have another guest this time from Australia. The first guest we have from Australia, second, I guess. I don't remember exactly, but we have Gavin Crumb today. He's uh, the founder and um, being consultant of Bing Guru. Um, recent we contact with Gavin is because uh, he's been sharing tons of information uh, in his uh, website. In his, he has uh, his own channel in YouTube that you can visit uh, with the Bing Guru um, name uh, or dot uh, name and you can just follow him know more about the things he's doing and sharing so welcome gavin and thanks for being with us today uh, hi, hi samuel thanks for having me on board and um good introduction i mean I, as you said for anyone that hasn't met me before um i am all over the internet when it comes to bim it's pretty hard to avoid me <laughs> so <laughs> you'll find me on linkedin youtube twitter um i try to keep pretty busy and, and i really enjoy um, staying socially active in, in AEC and BIM, I found that's really changed my career and my focus a lot um, yes. compared to just working in like one company or focusing on a small team or, or one project specifically. Um, it's a lot of work. So if anyone's looking at doing it, just be aware it does it does take a lot of time. But um, but it's a high reward and it means that I get to meet people like like yourself, Samuel, that um, we can we can exchange knowledge and and ideas and and promote you know our values to more people and and hopefully um you know make a bigger impact on. On the industry, so um, so it's great to see you have a podcast, and and I really appreciate Thanks. coming on board, and look forward to having a good chat about all things AEC. Yeah, yeah, well, welcome, and it's it's great to have you here uh, today. We're gonna we're gonna talk about the best practices for AEC for the coming years. So we intend to have this kind of futuristic talk about uh, the the perceptions we have. Uh, same uh, Gavin as as I, we're gonna share our ideas and. Uh, and thoughts about how how the AEC industry is going to transform in the coming years. Because uh, I think, like Gavin, just by by mentioning he's been in in the internet and sharing a lot of information, I think um, one of the uh, strongest points that is making a change right now is technology, is thanks to the internet and thanks to the things that people can find on the internet. And for me, at the moment, I, I will say, and I I will um, dare to to do you say that the uh, internet is more more uh, advanced even than universities sometimes, you know? So it's a great platform to share. Like that's the reason we have the podcast. We have videos. We have uh, tons of and tons of information that you can extract from there. So mm. uh, yeah, it's so almost like there's too much too much information yeah. now, isn't there? It's like it's hard to know where the best um the best resources are. So um, but I mean, based on what I've seen from Aves, you're doing a great podcast, and I think it's definitely worth people following. Um, I mean, the internet's really becoming a life it seems at this point everything's connected to it everyone's connected to it even even developing nations are accessing the internet now it's become a, a global phenomenon essentially there's very few countries where you, you don't use the internet um and even bim aec i mean we're seeing all of our software either moving onto the web um, as web applications or just connecting to the web through cloud or passing data to other platforms via the web like there's a system called speckle you might have heard of before maybe that yeah. does um use the web to pass data between hardware essentially hardware sessions um so it's pretty pretty hard to escape it and i think it's definitely going to become more and more relevant as um as time goes forward i feel like one day we'll just do everything on the web properly all our software will be on the web great wouldn't it i mean the licensing might be a bit scary i think if we're working on the web because yeah. obviously they can track us a lot more easily so we'll probably see things like <laughs> token systems where they charge you for how long you use the software rather than yeah. um paying for a year so that sort of worries me a little bit um in that we've already seen you know quite aggressive subscription models already um, yeah. But once they can track us twenty four seven with with the internet connected, I mean they can yeah. charge us whenever we use it, right? It's a bit it's a bit yeah. challenging. Mm. Yeah, I think I think it should be like a the the way that I imagine and I hope it will be is like a we will have the access with the license, but with a more reasonable cost as well. Mm. Like uh, it won't it wouldn't be the same that we have right now. Like as, as a software, I think it will be more like a. I don't know, like paying them, a, paying like a LinkedIn account if you want to go like yeah, a, you know, as you go sort of system. Like, yeah, yeah, I mean, 
we need like a, an Elon Musk or a Jeff Bezos to come and disrupt the, <laughs> <laughs> the pricing model. I don't, I don't know if you've seen his um his Starlink system where he wants to put internet and in, in satellites around the world and yeah. distribute internet everywhere. I mean, we need something like that that's going to really shake up the um the foundations of of fair fair costing and fair subscription. Um, hopefully yeah. that will that will change it. Maybe open open source software might have a fairly big impact in future on that maybe because um, there'll be more available software that puts a bit more pressure on um, the closed BIM solutions, hopefully. Um, not only from a cost perspective, but also from a, a development of features perspective. Um, you probably saw that letter that they all wrote to Autodesk a while ago where they said yeah, the features yeah. aren't developing fast enough. And it's not only the cost that's the problem, it's just how much innovation that we're seeing in some platforms too. So. So I'm excited yeah, for, for totally. what competition will do in the future. Um, but I highly welcome it yeah. as well. Yeah. At, at some moment, I think like uh, just like nowadays, uh, everyone's using like kind of like Revit or Rhino and being using software for like uh, many, many years, which is great. Mm -hmm. And I hope like we can still use them for a bit more. But oh, I think sure. like, uh, like another software can easily enter just like Revit did at, at, uh, at back in the time. Uh, Grasshopper mm. and Rhino did uh, also back in the days, like they just came out, people started using them, and now I'm one of the most used softwares, uh, even for AEC, you know, to yeah, took off. So no doubt, like a, a new technology will come out of, out of nowhere. And mm. maybe at the beginning, it will be a little uh, kind of like messy or maybe not. Uh, yeah, they, they always start messy. Um, I don't know if you've seen the really early versions of Revit, but it was not yeah. plain. So, <laughs> you know, the family editor was very scary. Yeah. Um, in Revit, Revit 7, uh, 7, I think was the first version I saw. Um, I used Revit 20, 2012 first, so that was quite a clean version. Um, but people have shown me that they, they never, they never start out clean. Um, you never suspect yeah. they're going to be the big one, but <laughs> I'm sure that the, the big competitors for Revit is probably already here. We just necessarily haven't seen it take off as hard yet. So, um, cause all they need is really a, a strong user base. Um, yeah. and from there they can build the software on the back of the funding of the subscriptions and the payments. So. Um, and I think I really like Rhino and Grasshopper because they're a great example of how you don't necessarily need, you know, the majority of the industry to be successful. Like they've really got a niche community, but, um, but from that, they've got such a strong support community and development community and they market their software very well um, to the right people. And from that, they've, they've been quite successful. So they haven't necessarily needed the, um, the heavy marketing tactics of Waterdesk to get themselves where they are, I guess. So there's a lot of different ways to go about it. And I'm sure we haven't, we haven't seen the end of, end of them as well. So. Lots to come. Uh, mm. It's we are just in the beginning, so we we will see about that. We will see how how mm. the market starts changing. But um, to start with our conversation today, uh, Gavin, giving a little twist to the to our talk. Like um, mm. I I have this first question that I would like to discuss, and goes by how can we be ready for the AEC of tomorrow? Well, it's a good question. Um, I get asked that a lot by graduates and students that come to me very worried um, that they're, they're not necessarily ready for the industry even of today, um, let alone the one of tomorrow. And I always have to tell them that really the industry of today isn't going to be the industry of today tomorrow. So it's more about thinking about what what's worth knowing um, that maybe someone else doesn't know right now. So I usually direct them initially towards programming as a concept, um, not necessarily as a software or a technology, but just thinking programmatically um, because I feel like so much of our software is adjusting to suit uh, the way programmers work as well. Um, so if anyone wants to say do BIM or generative design or any of those things in say 10 years, I expect a lot of it's going to require some degree of programmatic thinking and how the design process works. Um, so I always encourage them to look at things like Python just as a, a language on its own, just to learn how programming functions all together. Um, so things like just the idea of storing things in variables and transforming data, uh, those very basic core principles. Um, and I find a lot of those things actually relate back to BIM quite heavily as well. We do a lot of data manipulation, object manipulation, um, I usually guide people towards, um, I, I don't actually use any of it myself, but I do encourage people to look at uh, things like WebJS or JavaScript on the web okay. um, to try and look at whether they might potentially be developing applications or even developing applications for clients. I see a lot of firms moving quite heavily towards um, in-house software development and support, um, which actually a lot of their clients end up utilizing. So I see that as a strong, a strong valuable skill set if people can develop it. Um, having said that, if they just want to be architects, they just want to be engineers, they want to design projects, coordinate projects, um, I usually just encourage them to really deeply understand um, the way that their discipline functions in projects. 
and also to really communicate with the people that aren't necessarily going to be in the industry in 20 or 30 years time for example these um you know 50 to 80 sort of age bracket people that have a lot of things to share um but not a lot of people are really listening i guess is the challenge um or maybe there's not the opportunity for them to communicate because one side of the industry is so heavily focused on the software and one's very heavily focused on um you know delivering a project or managing a business structure logistics Uh, yeah Mm, so tapping into that knowledge that um, isn't necessarily available at university or available even on the internet necessarily, that project-based experience. Because yeah. um, I feel like we still will need those roles in the future. I think that software will only change so much of the industry so fast. Um, I think that we're always going to need people that can manage and deliver and coordinate outcomes. I, I think AI and those sort of softwares aren't going to come and take away those jobs anytime soon. There's still so much um, abstract decision-making involved. Yeah. In those roles that they are still very, very safe. Um, it's just a question of how many people will we need that do that. Um, maybe we'll need less people that do that and more people that develop the software. Um, it's going to be a balance rebalancing, I think, as um as companies and projects find out what how much of the what they do is related on producing a set of drawings and how much is related to producing a model with data embedded in it for something, say, like a digital twin. Uh, we're going to see a shift, I think, of that paradigm. Some clients are moving away from drawings. Um, there are some projects where they're experimenting with going drawingless. So yeah. I do encourage people not to focus on drafting specifically as drafting. Yeah. So, And most of the software does the drawing for us now anyway. When we do a BIM model, we, we draw a section, but we really just make a section and put a couple of notes on it. Um, so I encourage people to move away from that and then focus more on on the create the production of models and the the capturing of data and and then that's a, sort of a different way of looking at it. So so lots of things that I guess I I get them to look at. Um, but I'd be intrigued to see I guess what you think maybe the industry of tomorrow also needs to be as well. I, I, I do agree. I, I do agree on the drawing part. I think like uh, myself, I do I do believe that drawings will be the first thing that uh, we'll see disappearing. Maybe in mm. the in the future in the recent future, yeah. uh, the reason I say this is because well one of the things that I have realized in my career and my experience is that drawings never match. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, exactly, they, yeah. it doesn't matter how how beautiful they look, uh, how detailed they look, but they just don't match uh, uh, with anything else. Um, mm. Also, mm. they they are like two D drawings are really uh, kind of like a, I would say tricky because they not just because they don't match, but also you cannot see a lot of things that you actually need to see when you are doing like a project or when you are modeling. It's really yeah, important totally. to have this perception of like understanding that at the end of the day, we are not doing anything on 2D. You know, the, mm-hmm. the buildings we are doing are always in a 3D space. And mm-hmm. the reason it's in a 3D space is because it's going to live in a 3D space and we need to understand actually the 3D space before we understand the, the 2D, right? Mm. I actually always encourage um, people when they want to do drafting, I actually encourage them first to learn to model, go out to site, see how they actually build it, and then they know how to draw it. Because a lot of people do detailing when they first start a job and they've never actually seen the detail in real life. Um, So it's almost like a waste of time guessing how this thing goes together because the contractor knows what they're going to do anyway. Um, So I find that can be another way of looking at the when you do like detailed drawings because they will be required for a little while or even detailed modeling. Um, I've seen that becoming more common. Um, yeah, without that industry knowledge, it can be quite difficult to really, really um, find it worth it. Mm. Yeah, it's, 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 I think I, I agree on that also. Like, uh, it's, it's just like a kind of, I wouldn't say like a waste of time, but like, I, I, I would say that people <laughs> have to be like uh, conscious on where they invest time to learn something. Yeah. It's kind of like uh, using data. That's something that I really expect to see in the in the recent future to just uh, like pump like in a really really strong way. Like people just looking at data in a in a really familiar ecosystem. You know, even it's, mm. if it's inside companies. Uh, not all, sorry, not only inside companies, but like uh, uh, among the whole industry. Like those people mm. like actually understanding how to read the data, finding yep. mistakes on the data. Because I think data is super valuable as well. Yeah, for sure. Um, I agree. I, I see some construction companies already starting to take data for risk analysis. So they're, they're building up machine learning data sets 
um, mm-hmm. to try and, I guess, predict when they're potentially going to run into problems or when they can just assess how well a job measured compared to other jobs. Um, they are starting to collect that data, but, but they almost need to know the question that they're asking before they get the answer, I guess. They, they need to know what, what the big data is. Otherwise, it's just a big pile of data, I guess. Um, <laughs> and I guess clients, clients will lead that demand too, I guess. I'm noticing some clients are actually starting to brief us with data requirements, which is really nice, but really unfamiliar. Um, so they'll give us specific fields they need in the final models um, or what type of output they want. Um, not not necessarily just Kobe. That seems to be sort of the fallback. They go, uh, I've been told that Kobe is what we need. So we just ask for Kobe and you go, no, what do you actually need? Because yeah. you show them Kobe and they go, oh, this is really messy. I don't understand yeah. it. And it's a great <laughs> data schema, but you need to know what to do with it and which programs to put it in. So sometimes they just say we want six, six values in all the rooms in the model and give us That's an IFC it. and we'll go from there. So... So, um, yeah, I think the client will lead that to some degree as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was having this conversation a few, few episodes back with another uh, uh, colleague that I had in my life. And uh, we were talking also a bit about the importance of knowing what's the information that you're going to look in the model, what's the mm-hmm. requirement of a, of a project. And I think that's, that, that comes with the, with the question that I also have for today uh, that what are the challenges that uh, companies will have uh, to defy, you know, for the future? And I think, mm-hmm. like, uh, coming back to this, I think big companies have the, I will say, the privilege to be able to have a proper R&D department uh, yep. compared to, to people that is, is running on its own or, or small companies. Mm-hmm. I think, like, uh, big companies that know how to invest in R&D and, and understand the value of having a, a proper team doing R&D uh, mm. can actually experience, uh, like have more experiments and have more uh, uh, freedom to play with the with the with leading the leading the way of the industry. You know? Yeah, it sort of ties into I guess what I think the biggest challenge is for all companies now, and that is that we have to start taking some more risks. Um, and R and D obviously is a, it's a financial risk; it may not lead to to return on investment. Um, but I guess just all sorts of risks. Um, we have to start challenging our clients what they're asking us for. Um, you know, are they asking for too little for their own internal management systems? Like yeah. maybe we need to start asking them, what is your facilities management system? Um, can we give you more than potentially what you're asking for? There is still like a tendency in the industry to just tick all the boxes on the tender um, and just win the tender, deliver exactly what was asked for. Don't go above and beyond because we're wasting money. Um, but if we want to improve our industry, then we do really need to make our clients more aware of, you know, what they're missing out on that we could potentially give them yeah. or that other firms could potentially give them. Some firms know that they're behind and they try to make sure their clients stay behind as well, <laughs> just so they have clients to, to service. Um, but we really owe it to them as an industry to give them the best that we can, we can do. And I think taking risks is really a huge part of that. That, that really is the ultimate I guess the defiance yeah. against um, status quo to take a risk and, and actually experiment with new techniques and you know hire new people hire like for example some companies hire a programmer and they have no idea what they're going to do with the programmer they tell the programmer go nuts figure out what all the problems are and we'll, we'll solve them together and that can be a really interesting business model because they they don't know the problems until they see them um, you yeah. know you don't know until 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 you know I guess is the challenge sometimes too. Um, so yeah, they're, they're probably like the, the, the risks I guess I see as, as being you know the highest reward. As as we've seen with businesses outside our own industry, that the ones that have succeeded the most are the ones that took the biggest risks and and did what no one else was doing, um, yeah. or did something in a very different way to the way that everyone else did it. I mean, you look at Uber for example, that that could have failed miserably. That everyone could have said, oh no, I, I, there's no security in this. I don't know who this person is. They could drive me off and I'd never be seen again. But we all put our trust and they took the risk and knowing people had to. Had to put that trust in the industry, and what do you know? It, you know, turned into a multi multi billion business model. So, um, I feel like that's probably what might happen. And I see some companies starting to take those sorts of risks. I see some consulting firms becoming like hybrid architecture slash consulting firms and getting more involved in software and delivering very specific software solutions to their clients, which is obviously a huge risk because the client might just not not, not be seeking it. Um, but when they get those clients, oh boy, they're, they're big money clients. I tell you what, like Amazon and those sort of clients, if you get them, yeah. you, you know, you're set for a while. So it's just risk, <laughs> yeah, risk totally, rewards. Totally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, and, and, and it, I think also that um, technology, at least in my experience, it, it has changed a lot the, the way that I used to conceive arch, architecture and construction. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I started like uh, studying and being at the university to do to what it's becoming nowadays, you know, architecture and construction now has like 
all these operations, all these softwares. We are living like in a uh, well. We could say, we can say that our generation is the first generation, like changing from no technology to technology. You know, mm. with, uh, video games. Uh, we have a cell phone. We have, we used to have the Game Boy. Yeah. The, you know, the, <laughs> well, the we first. survived the um the dial up internet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah. and yeah, totally. And, and we are and and, and I think like a. We are we are looking at or we are living in a really really like interesting time to see also mm. this like moving to to the AEC industry where just like you were saying like uh, having having the chance to take a risk because there's so much technology and there's so many things now that you can do with the scripting with the Python with the mm. technology mm. that it's like uh, we have a new new set of games new set of tools that uh, no yeah. one ever has mm. has used before. Uh, that's a big challenge for us too as a generation because i guess we know how good we have it um whereas the new graduates potentially don't necessarily always appreciate the software as much because they haven't seen how bad it was before um (laughs) and likewise we didn't see how bad it was doing hand drawing but the the previous generation did so it's always that 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 importance of the handover generation to really give people an appreciation for for what matters and and you know what doesn't matter and and you know how we can capture things that aren't necessarily captured in the software still like a lot of those techniques and ideas and you know construction techniques construction technologies that aren't necessarily in line with the technology itself that we use um, and still preserving that knowledge or, or capturing it in more creative ways I mean there's there's a lot of challenges for our generation especially as yeah. that that in between generation between you know the new kids with the new tools and the the old school with the, with you know the, the printing yeah. presses and and all sorts of different ways but but the very advanced technical knowledge that came with having to to not rely on technology so much so i guess we're you know we're in an interesting position i would say mm. yeah totally and and i also believe that uh, like something that uh it will be like quite uh different to the to the architecture that is coming for the next year is how we're gonna use the new technologies to build, and not just mm. to build, but to actually build a concept of a of a project. And uh, mm. back in the days, it was it was a lot about like, uh, well, I want to make this thing look so beautiful. It's all about like having the the feeling of the space and these kind of yeah. things that I, I do believe that are super super valid to have this kind of like a inputs when you're doing some mm. some sort of design but i think that nowadays with the technology that we have we can actually see have all these inputs that we didn't have before and these inputs oh, we can are, capture are things doing throughout like yeah. a lot a lot of uh different experiments to the projects and to the way we conceive the architecture as well you know yeah there's definitely a more well-connected process from start to finish the technology enables where the concept can be preserved in in a, in a data or a geometric format to some degree i think that's definitely a really valuable uh, thing that it brings. I think people are still struggling to say Unite concept and BIM, for example, but they are finding um, ways to capture brief data, some of those things that, you know, really need to be there from the start, especially on things like hospitals, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, I've worked on a few of them before where we actually used a database from the very beginning and yeah. the whole building essentially was briefed by the users and the client inside a database. And then we hooked up um, Revit to, to Dorofus in this case was the name of the database. And and um, as a result, we could constantly check back on the briefed requirements very accurately um, rather than going through a written 300-page report that a lot of other projects like to use. So, yeah. so it's definitely enabling a lot more creative methods for, for um, I guess, managing the project throughout. Um, I feel like one day we'll probably just have some device that we put on our brain and it just projects our idea <laughs> and maybe we press a, press a bake, bake idea button and it just bakes the model. <laughs> Um, that, that that might be one day how we start yeah. a concept off possibly, um, but but I guess probably not in our time, but I mean, that'd be cool yeah. if it did happen. But if anyone's watching this in 500 years and it happened, um, <laughs> great. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. That, that, will be, that will be awesome if that happened, to yeah. be honest. I mean, if Elon Musk can make his um his brain project work, I guess that's his uh, that's his current, the only person that yeah. seems to be working on that right now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's quite, quite complex. Like even sometimes when I'm just doing like script or like a coding Python, I'm just like, well, there's no way that I can can process all this information just by just like um i i, I kind of view, I, I kind of trust yeah, that uh we still as humans we're gonna be the leading part of the creative uh, process that's yeah, something that, uh, it will be basically super strong difficult for a computer to replace yeah it, this is one of my favorite um sort of topics in in, in architecture and, and in aec right now you know the man versus the machine or the machine and the man or the man in the machine it's a really challenging one because i guess we 
we can't we can't necessarily see where it is right now because our technology hasn't reached the point where the machine can make decisions like a person truly can. Um, I see a lot of you know artificial intelligence, which is really just um, decision making processes yeah. laid out in a, in an if 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 this if that if that. And like, that's not really artificial intelligence because we've told it all those options. Um, once computers have the ability to to do things like read the internet and, and make their own decision trees based on what you know something like the biggest database in the world can tell them, which is the internet. Um, it, that that's where I think it'll be more interesting. Where, where maybe technology might have a more active, active decision-making role in the design process or the construction process. And I think that's where it might become more challenging. Um, at the same time, I think that as long as people maintain how technology is used carefully, um, we can still preserve the need for people in a process. Um, one, one of my favorite things I, I like to say on this topic is you can't sue a robot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and the people that make robots, they, they make very big disclaimers on these things um, that essentially stop them from being sued if anything goes wrong. Um, so, you know, usually there'll be like, you know, the spot robot dog that goes around the construction sites has a whole bunch of uh, usage manual policies that you have to follow. And if you don't follow them and it kills someone, that, that's on them. They didn't yeah. configure or safely operate the, the robot, even though it's an autonomous robot. Um, and I see that it'll be similar as well. There'll be a lot of disclaimers saying, hey, if you press the build my project button, you've still got to go and check it all manually anyway, because we can't be liable for yeah. the software, the, the, the algorithm, because there's still mistakes that can be made. And I feel like it'll take a long time for that process to become liable. Um, yeah. If it's so accurate that you know it can't be wrong, sure. Like we've got like analysis programs out there and some of them do take some level of liability over the outcome. Um, like if you run a wind analysis using a wind analysis software, well, it should be correct. Um, but they can still say, oh, you didn't press the right button or you didn't do this properly. They can find reasons why things didn't work. Um, AI is going to be more difficult because the the, the, the decision-making processes are going to be so deep and hard to understand um, at surface value that maybe you know, that they'll have to still disclaim them to some degree. But, but yeah, the man and the machine is a, it's a very interesting topic. For now, I think it's man plus machine, um, taking advantage of technology to make up for the things that we're not very good at. So, yeah. for example, like if, if I asked you to tell me pi to 2,000 decimal places, we, we'd probably get maybe to three, four, I don't know how many decimals you know, but a computer yeah. would just go on forever. It's happy to keep going. Um, and some of those things, you know, we don't want to be good at. I don't want to know Pi, um, but a computer <laughs> loves knowing Pi. <laughs> it's great. Um, sort of like a, you've probably seen like the Matrix where um, where they they put uh, Kung Fu in someone's head yes. and now they just know Kung Fu. Like, yes. I mean, if computers could do that, we, we wouldn't bother learning anything. We'd just say, oh, just load me up with, you know, import the math package into my brain. <laughs> and, and essentially by working with, yeah. with a, a computer, we're, we're really sort of doing that. Where we're offloading some of the responsibility to a to a machine, so that we can sort of work together with it um, yeah. and get the best outcome. And I think for now, that's how technology works. It's not really replacing us; it's just enhancing uh, the way that we can work. We are still the ultimate decision maker, um, and until you know someone else can be sued for it, we probably still will be. Let's say, but it's an interesting topic. Yeah. Uh, What's your take on it? Uh, like I would say, like for me, is uh, the way that you can actually use technology to take advantage to make your life simpler. Yeah. I, I'm, I, I don't really struggle or fight with technology. Technology, Like I, I know multiple people that maybe are scared. They don't want to move to, the, the, to this kind of side of the architecture because they, they believe or they tend to say that oh, you are losing all the magic about the beauty of the aesthetics and all these kind of like mm -hmm. uh, previous ways of, of creating, which uh, again, I'm not fighting. I'm, I'm not against this kind of uh, process, but I also know that there's like a great value that uh, computers are bringing to the to the design, you know, to the just to the perception. And, and honestly, when you start like doing code and and you start like using tools such as scripting, you 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 realize that a computer allows you to be more creative rather than have you more limited or with your constraints, you know, a lot of people I see saying like, well, if, if you have to use a script, uh, it's a function that uh, is specific for something. So you, you don't have the freedom to do all this magic. Now, mm -hmm. honestly, I think it's the, it's the opposite. I think like for, in my case, like uh, thanks to, to the use of the computer and the use of data and coding and stuff, I've, mm -hmm. I start to discover all these possible, like an amazing things that I can do that uh, even when I write code, I'm just writing code. And I still mm. like, you know, like thinking, oh, I'm going to do this, right? So I have a really like ugly sketch about what I want to do. 
you know, like mm. three lines. Yeah, yeah, we all start with a sketch, then, yeah. <laughs> and then once I have that, like I just start like playing with it and the result is completely different to what the sketch was at the beginning, but I'm super happy yeah. with the result uh, 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 as it is, you know, because... Uh, yeah, it's like a rationalization really exercise almost yeah. in, in finding the underlying mathematical concepts in that form and using them to generate the, the, the process. I mean, I find it so frustrating that some people are so apprehensive towards using technology to generate form and to capture yeah. design because they're the most valuable people that could be using these tools potentially. Um, yeah, they've really true. held themselves back. If someone's only input on a project beyond managing it is to just draw a little sketch and hand it over to someone, there's yeah. just so much like sort of lost in opportunity, I think in that process. And, and a lot of them would benefit from understanding more about the mathematics behind the forms they're making. Um, not just let's make a wavy roof. It's like, well, is it a sine wave? It is a cosine wave. Let's talk mathematics and actually find the, the underlying concept so that when they see it in two weeks and it doesn't look anything like what they asked for, they yeah. can actually say, well, this is because I needed this to be a, a cosine wave and I needed this yeah. to be a Bayesian. And they can, they can actually explore the, the, the form finding concepts, even if they're not the ones with a hand on the mouse. I think by by doing a little bit of that technology side, they get a bigger appreciation for wow. for what worked. I mean, if you go back to say like Gaudi, for example, he had such a strong understanding of the mathematics behind yeah. his forms. It wasn't just a, a consequence of doing a sketch. Yeah. He really appreciated the, the underlying concepts behind what he did. And I feel like we've lost that connection to some degree between the idea maker and, and the, the, the doer that turns it into something in, in 3D or in 2D. Um, so I hope that we see a, more of a connection between those in future. It's, um, and, it's yeah. something that I, I also like, uh, for example, in my case, when I was in university, it was, uh, well, it was the first uh, kind of like a semester that they put the mathematic class in architecture kind of behind the screen, mm. you know, like, like mm. you, taking less points for it. And then, uh, well, I finished my career, keep and, uh, my, my studies and I still like working in an, when I still like doing like uh, a scripting, I had to dig a lot in the world of mathematics again, because mm -hmm. I had to start like learning all these concepts, so understanding properly what is the scene, what is the cosine, how can I use planes, mm -hmm. what is the importance of just having a triangle for like, you know, like I never did like, uh, well, I, I never used Pythagoras so much until I started like doing scripting, <laughs> you know, like. <laughs> uh, trigonometry and Pythagoras, yeah. I use it so much. And, yeah. and and really like it's it, for me it was kind of like super funny because I was wondering like how come like my, well where I study they were like taking this apart from the studies and now mm. like it's coming again for me in my life at this different moment and it's just yeah. more and more it's important. A and yeah, I mean, I, I've been teaching this semester a, a course about BIM and I did touch on a lot of things that weren't in the curriculum before. And I have seen that the university curriculums in general have seemed to take out a lot of the things that are seen as too tricky or okay. too scary or they, they'd rather mm -hmm. focus on design and the soft skills. Um, and this doesn't necessarily reflect on the university I teach at. It's just in general from what I've heard from students and seen during my own studies that there is a retreat from yeah. the technical and a, a retreat to the to the soft and the, the design related. And I feel like that mm. maybe is try, they're trying not to intimidate students away from their courses. There's probably some business decisions behind that, unfortunately, as well in a lot of cases, um, that the more students you can get in the course, the more money you can make and, you know, mm. let's not scare them away, it seems, which is really bad, but I think that's actually driving a lot of universities these days. Um, yeah. I'm quite happy to say that at least the course I'm in, the students are definitely still very much um, understanding of mathematics and they seem to have had some really good computational courses that, nice. that taught them these concepts but um it, it's definitely not a, not as common i mean you're right even when i studied at university there was an, an elective on computation i think um and beyond that we really didn't encounter a lot of mathematics um if i ever drew a triangle for trigonometry someone asked me what i was doing <laughs> they didn't know what i was doing um so because I, I constantly do that i start drawing the triangle uh, which angle do i know which side don't i know and i, I try to figure out yeah, the the soccer toe or whichever acronym people use for it um so yeah there definitely was a a loss of those those skills i guess and, and it probably ties back to how school connects to university as well because we do learn a lot of these things in school. And I feel if maybe a little bit earlier on in the school system, you could actually pick a career pathway. Like, are you a creative? Are you a, are you a technical thinker? Are you a scientist? Which pathway do you want to follow? Because a lot of us knew that we wanted to focus on some sort of field, maybe around year nine, year 10, maybe um, before we went to matriculation. Like I knew I wanted to do something creative. That was pretty much what I was set on. And then in year 12, I decided to be an architect. Um, but, but if I had a bit more focus down that pathway, it probably would have helped me 
gain the skills earlier, but potentially connect them more logically to a degree that could hopefully talk to like a, a school system that leads you there rather than, um, you know, completely separate and, you know, almost no connection between what we learn. Yeah. Um, so yeah, th there's definitely some, some gaps in, in what people learn and, and re rediscovery is, is very essential for a programmer these days in architecture because yeah. none, none of us study to be programmers really. So we're all discovering <laughs> a, something we were never taught. Um, we teach ourselves essentially. So yeah, it's yeah, a big challenge. Yeah. If, if, if I could give like a piece of advice for the companies and this technology like revolution that is coming, like. I, I will say, uh, just like you were mentioning, like go for like some some sort of programming skills. Like uh, myself, mm. uh, I, I found myself like learning coding because I I still like to, well I just look at generative design process like back in the days when it was just like starting to to be something, and I mm. was just impact on the on the beauty of it, you know, on the mm. magic of having all these possibilities of, of combination and. And knowing that I can save tons and tons of hours. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. Of, of <laughs> that's, exploration. that's probably my favorite part. Yeah. That there are some things I do in, in my day-to-day -day work that I will only do using programming. I refuse yeah. to do them the manual way. Yeah, um, like, say, in Revit, putting revisions on sheets. Uh, I would never, ever do that manually ever again. And I saw someone the other day doing it manually when I was helping out subconsulting at an office, and I had to just go and hand them my script and say, run this and go home. Yeah. <laughs> like, you, you've done your job. The yeah. next two hours, I saw they had about 300 sheets to do it for, and they were going one by one, one by one. No. I was like, oh, I have a script that you can run in about, probably takes like two minutes to set up all the packages and yeah. a minute to run tops. And it That's was done, it. and they couldn't believe it. Um, and I'm like, hopefully I've just found someone that can do some programming now. Um, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, saving time is just a huge part of it. I mean, that's why I, I don't understand why some people don't want to learn programming when they're working in technical roles and doing a lot of technical things. Um, yeah. You know, if you're doing something more than once, it's probably something that you can code. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. that's, that's how I see it. Um, but it's if they I find it doing. therapeutic to do things over and over again, um, that that's on them, but no, nah, not for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, like even, even myself, when I started using Revit, that was uh, about 2009. So I was mm. uh, able to play with the first versions of, of the software and, mm. uh, and honestly, the reason that I I was I was so happy with Revit is because I figured out that it was so easy to make sections and multiple front oh, yeah. views yeah. and that was the first thing I liked just, about it too. That yeah. was that was when I, I was thinking like why I'm using CAD if I can just do this like even like oh, drawing the sections times faster. Like <laughs> I mean, yeah. and, and you have like a three D at the moment. I was so happy to just have like a three D model to. Mm, to show, just to, to, look around, to, show yeah. to render and also to do the drawings only one mm. like so kind of software like it's simple uh yeah. i maybe like the, the, well still like i uh, uh revit allows you to do well i think revit is kind of tricky when it allows you to do like a crazy geometry but i yeah, do it believe that it's super yeah. possible like uh like i i think it's just how do you kind of like uh, how familiar you are with the system with the, mm -hmm. with the you know, i've been using rhino inside probably more often than than revit mm -hmm. itself for the more complex geometry and passing that okay. across to revit instead so um as like adaptive components and placing yeah. them using using rhino um that that's been a fantastic project that, that i've been really enjoying nice. using in in you know most days in my work recently because i used a lot of grasshopper and i've used a lot of revit but i, I never really had much of a chance to mix them together there used to be a project called um, Flux, I think it was, that connected yeah. them, and then then Flux was gone, and, exactly. and I just heard all these things about it, and I was like, oh, I wish I'd wish I'd had it, and now we've got it again in Rhino and so uh, so yeah, right. that's been a good sense. way to sort of break away from the limitations of the software, and and I think that programming for me is a little bit like that as well. It's a way to overcome barriers in the software and not let the software limit you so much um, as as being able to script something or being able to pass some really complex data from another program in a more direct way than just importing. Um, it definitely, you know, unlocks a lot of possibilities I find. Mm. Yeah, no, and also I think like, well, I, I do believe that another, another like good advice for companies is like, know how to choose your people, you know, like don't, don't, don't try to get like a full team of, uh, of automation and bring five people on board mm -hmm. just to do automation. I think it's more valuable when you have like, well, you automate, you know how to script, you know how to model mm -hmm. really nice. And then you put that team together. And I think it's more like kind of, uh, funny i mean also it's yeah, yeah. also it's good to have people that in the in the environment that you can share knowledge which in the case of our company at the moment 
there's at least uh, well we are three uh, at least three people that we know how to to write script and coding mm-hmm. so it it helps a lot on on our work because we are we kind of uh, just share a script with, uh, between us you know when we are doing something mm-hmm. or we just have this kind of thinking already where we are like, well, let's automate this. Or, well, let's Yeah, yeah. you need that sort of team, I think, to make computation effective. You need well, one person alone doing computation in a company is definitely a huge mistake. Um, I've been there before. I've been the BIM manager writing Dynamo scripts and no one's running them. <laughs> so I've been there and it, it sucks. Like you need, you need a team, I think, to make it really successful. Um, but you're right, that team needs sort of like a pretty wide skill set and they need to be able to relate to all the people that you know could potentially benefit from computation as well. So, like, so where I sub consult for now, I have a team of three, and we're a very diverse like three people. Like I, I myself, you know, I'm doing all my social stuff, doing a lot of my marketing, but also um, sort of guiding them through learning various programs. I sort of know a, a little bit about everything. Um, whereas then we have like a heavy ladybug slash um, grasshopper user who's an environmental designer essentially. Okay. And he's very experienced. He knows a lot about the Sydney planning requirements um you know really fun guy bubbly personality and then we have a fresh graduate that's just essentially went through a computational design course he's just absorbing knowledge um but learning how to 3d print and all sorts of things and i find across us we managed to cover a lot of ground um without really stepping on each other's feet very much like we we sort of all have our own things but we all work really well together because we all respect each other's um different skill sets and, and experience levels and and um you know we share a lot of ideas around and hey has anyone got time to look at this yeah cool grab a look at it so i find that culture is really necessary to make computation yeah. successful um because it makes it fun but it also makes you feel like you're not on your own just you know yeah. playing around with tools it's more it's a bigger it's a bigger picture it's a, a higher yeah, virtue i guess and, yeah. and i and i also believe that when you're, when you are playing like just on your own with the tools like uh it's also quite difficult to know if you're wrong or, or not you know oh for sure yeah like the great thing about having a graduate on our team is sometimes you can see them just going so wrong <laughs> and you're like you're gonna be doing that for four hours and look yeah. there's a node that does it yeah. <laughs> and you just you just show them one little solution yeah. and their mind is blown and they're so happy so it's cool to have a graduate because it sort of reminds it keeps me humble because it reminds me of when I was in the same situation, had no idea what tools were available, um, slowly learning about them and we're just accelerating this guy like super fast, like through all these things. And it's good to just keep an eye on them and you know, remember that there's there's you know many ways to solve a problem, but there are better ways in some cases and sometimes they're just one node <laughs> in a yeah. visual coding program. Yeah, so no, yeah, it's some, definitely. Some, um, and sometimes yeah. sometimes the, the new minds that come to this kind of like a side of the of the industry. They just mm. surprise you on on, oh, yeah, for sure. on how fast they even learn sometimes. Because like mm. I, 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 in my case, for example, I have trained people uh, to to learn Dynamo and I, and things that, have, for example, took me like a year for just just to start like learning because I was learning mostly mm. on my own and yep. just like from like the blog or whatever I could, but I just mainly on my own. And then I start like teaching to people, and I'm like, damn it, like the things that I yeah, was accelerates about, right, yeah. yeah. Things the thing too is, I guess, remember small. like when you first started your career learning technology, I mean, I guess you were probably learning things like Revit, right? So, so like we learned fast, but we learned different things. So I guess that's the challenge that I find those first five or so years are really where people do a majority of their, like the bulk of their learning. Um, like I learned a lot in the first maybe four or five years of my career about technology, but also architecture. And now it's more about me taking in things that I choose to learn because there's just so much I can I can learn now that it's it's too much. But I think too, like people's ability to retain and learn knowledge is definitely more fresh when you're newer to the industry. Um, I find a lot of people get quite bitter at the industry and it makes it harder for them to learn as well. They, they find more the problems with the industry rather than the opportunities that the industry offers. Whereas when you're new, to the industry, everything's new, everything's exciting. Like the first time you see Aconex, it's really exciting. Uh, the 3,000th time you see Aconex, you hate it. Like it's like one of those things. Um, so yeah. I think too that that enthusiasm is is definitely really important to to capture as early as possible and then take advantage of it in, in what they what they can learn. So yeah, it's definitely, I think having fresh graduates on, on teams is really necessary as well. Um, not just having four experts and you know maybe they're all doing managers and if you have that wide range of skill sets and ages i think it keeps everyone really honest yeah. and receptive to different ways of thinking and and keeps people humble as well they don't yeah. i don't forget that one day we were just you know like them not not knowing anything about programming you know we all start somewhere so i think it's very uh, valuable it's, it's good to ha- it's good to have a mix of everything i do agree on that i 
Mm. I think that's the best way to, to put that team together. And also, I have this this question for you today, Gavin. Like, um, as the industry and the technology evolves, uh, what is this, what is expected the expected result to for a project to be called successful? How how will you say that yeah. a project is successful nowadays? Like, using the, yeah. the the tech that we have. I mean, it's quite relevant to I guess a lot of what I've had to do as a BIM manager with doing um, return on investment cases, where we don't even get to invest in a technology until we've sort of proven to the managers that that it will be successful. Okay. And usually the metric I had to use was time um, to prove that we were saving time, um, which led to saving, saving money. Uh, and it's hard because a lot of the time companies don't think about time as money. They don't equate um, one hour that we didn't work yeah. as money saved. They just said, well, that's another hour we can just put on the project and we still charge for it. And I'm like, yeah, but you still you, you have this imaginary hour that you don't have to pay for anymore, essentially. Yeah. So it's <laughs> difficult. Um, and it's hard to measure as well. I think it's really important for... Uh, BIM managers especially uh, to track um, their solutions and how much time they're actually really saving on projects if you can measure it. Um, so if you can count the number of times a script is run in your office using a tool like say BIM Beats or even just Dynamo itself to communicate to like a web server and just say, oh, this script was run you know, 500 times this week and it only generated errors in 50 of those runs. If you can find a way to measure that, um, you, you know, you can you can definitely equate that to time. Uh, for example, um, I was experimenting with this in in a company I was working at before I before I consulted, um, embedding a little custom node in every single Dynamo script I ran to communicate to a to a folder on my server to put a little report about the script in there. Like, and it was saying like, how many sheets did you do something to? Or it was trying to count something meaningful that we could multiply by say like one second, two seconds, three seconds. And then scale that to, to across the month, how much time did we probably save by using this instead of doing things the alternative way? And that okay. was pretty much the only way I could prove to, to a manager that, you know, Dynamo was worth investing in. Um, and sometimes it's harder than that. Sometimes it's using hardware and hardware is hard to measure, um, especially because it's very expensive as well. For, for example, virtual reality uh, headsets, um, you know, it's hard to justify the purchase of those. Um, but it's also hard to justify, did, did we make money out of it? Because we don't really, we don't see what would have happened if we didn't buy it, I guess. That, that's the hard yeah. thing. So we, we, we for, all, for all they know, they might not have won a client over on a design. They might have lost a job eventually because the client wasn't engaged in a project, but they gave them a VI headset. Now you're in the model. Now you can see what's happening. Maybe that, that saved them a job and that could be you know, $4 million, $5 million fee, for example. So like that could have been like you, you saved your company $3 million, but you didn't know it. Um, it it's, it's hard to measure. Um, but I think, yeah, that's probably one thing. I think the the other, the main thing on top of that is just are your users happy is probably something that, you know, needs to be measured as well. If you can look around your company and see that on average people aren't happy to work at the company, um, you know, chances are that the, the software, the techniques, the workflows, they're not working. Because ultimately, people are happy when they know that things are working well um, or when they feel like they're doing thing, a good job. Um, if people feel like they're doing a bad job or they're doing things in a stupid way, um, they're going to generally be not very happy. So I think that's probably one thing that's probably easy for a company to pick up on. Um, in most cases, you can, you can just get a feel for companies if people are happy or not. Like I've went into companies for interviews before and just turn down the job because I'm like, this place doesn't feel happy. <laughs> like I can yeah. look around and people yeah. are yelling at each other and people are bashing the table when I'm walking up to go to the interview room. And I'm like, oh gosh, like something's not working here. <laughs> and chances are, it's probably the workflows. Like people aren't yeah. feeling supported or, you know, there's, there's a lot of ways yeah. to measure it. And some are, some are more obvious and some are less obvious, I guess. But um, yeah, how, how would you say like the success can be measured, I guess? I, I, I do agree on, on the time. I, I actually worked in a company for a while where we were doing like uh, trying to automate tasks for everyone mm -hmm. to use. And yeah, uh, the, the focus was on the time. Like how many hours do we save with this script? How many, uh, um, how many p uh, less people do we need to do this process right than the way we were doing it before? And, and I think that's, that's kind of uh, how the, how the, the process was was being meshed, uh, taking to consider the time and measure and everything. But uh, I also realized at the moment that uh, another thing is how to that that I didn't really put in my mind at the moment was like how much training do you have to give to give to a person that is completely unfamiliar with a system that uh, yeah, it's supposed to automate. Yeah. You know, so we have the script. We we went with them and and tried to explain. Well, this is a script like just like you were saying, like this. Uh, the revisions just to run the script 
but sometimes mm-hmm. people doesn't really know what's going to happen when they when they're going to yeah. run this trip you know so uh, I think that 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 amount of time that uh, you also have to to share with people that was something yeah. that uh, that uh, we didn't well I didn't properly consider on the time uh, that we were mm-hmm. like uh, taking to do the implementation. So yeah, like the the onboarding of people to the process yeah, is they, always always complex. I mean, I find I'm getting quite interested in um, user experience in, in a lot of the scripts I design now. So how does the script feel to run? How much does it interact with the user? Does it give you a message at the end that tells you what happened? Like, you know, I, I used to build Dynamo scripts where you just press play and you, you yeah. assume it worked. Um, usually these days I put a little pop-up at the end that says what happened by counting the results and telling the user, hey, like you, you did actually create 50 sheets, don't worry, like it yeah. works. <laughs> but um, otherwise, you know, when, when it says script is complete, like, you know, yeah. sometimes that means the script did nothing if it didn't work. So so it's um <laughs> th- th- those little user yeah. experiences, then they help people feel more comfortable with the tool if they're new to it as well. Um, I also find capturing like training in a format that's revisitable is really good as well. A lot of companies still do um, like lunchtime meetings and and whilst they're good for engaging people one-on-one or personally, um, obviously if someone joins your company next week, you, you, that, they have no idea what just happened. So, so yeah. I'm looking at um, like, I work with some companies now where I give them video training online um, and, and I, I record like training series for them or I give them guides on how to run scripts like with video, uh, not just yeah. written. I find written people don't understand it. Um, some companies use GIFs, um, no sound, no one's guiding them. Yeah. They have to read and watch a GIF at the same time. So, so I'm experimenting with video as a medium, essentially using my YouTube channel as the proving case for it. I guess that you know people did find this thing, these things useful, but but building very you know well guided sort of processes that that show them how it works, um, and that can minimise some of that that, that um, onboarding time as well, because you can say, hey, try out the videos, try out the scripts. Um, and, and maybe if it works, we won't see you again. And, and if it doesn't, then we know how we need to change the training material maybe as well. So, mm. yeah, yeah. I, I think, I think that also we did a, a little bit of everything. We, we try guides, we try videos. And I think at, at the end, mm. the, the, the best approach or the easiest, the, the best thing that can happen is just to, if you have a team that you can send and be one-on-one, like a few minutes with them. Yeah. Uh, sometimes it's still it's necessary at any like, scale. But yeah. uh yeah, it depends on the scale of the company, how many Definitely. people is gonna is gonna run. And and I and I will say that uh, a project is successful when you still like seeing that your people in the office is having free time. That's yeah. that that's when I when they have when I see in an office that there's people that has free time, but they have free time to explore new techniques, they have free time to learn more about some system, you know. I think that's or just when, to when design a building. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. totally. Because uh, that's when that's when I kind of like uh, I I believe that that's the, the main point when workflows are being done correctly, information yep. is structured correctly. You you have a a nice uh, relation between the employees, between the colleagues that are in the office, and I think mm. that's when when you can see like people like really having free time and not not wasting time because it's completely different. Like just uh, because I I've been in offices where you out of nowhere someone is just watching something on YouTube like completely mm. out of the of the <laughs> <laughs> out of the topic of, yeah out of the mm. topic and, uh, yeah. and that's kind of also like a bit annoying sometimes because you're like mm. like come on but like I also be in the offices when there's people that are you you see that they are like having free time and they are like playing with grasshopper like figuring out something mm. you know. Mm. And that's yeah, one of the I things I used to joke that. with my users about is um, if I if they ran one of my Dynamo scripts in the first company I was building them for, um, I was just setting up my YouTube channel and I said, hey, if you if you run a Dynamo script and it saves you heaps of time, feel free to watch one of one of my videos. <laughs> you, you get you get some downtime because you just save time. So yeah. so it's sort of I think you're right that if they're doing something that's not necessarily you know directly for the project, but you know they've they've made time, so they're using time. That, that's that's definitely beneficial. And, and you know when else are they going to learn? I guess is the hard yeah. thing too. So. So yeah, great point. I really like that yeah. one. Uh, yeah, that's that's something that I see, and also like um, I think um, having having people like uh that is curious and that is passionate about these technologies is another kind of like advice that I will give to companies. Like, uh, I, I know it's also difficult to find people like uh that just come with like with uh, with out of the box like thinking. Uh, it's yep. not really easy to find like R and D departments uh, like mm. just out of nowhere and just like like build an, an R and D department and taking mm. risks just with uh, anyone. I think I, I know it's a, a tricky part, but I I 
I do believe that uh, in a way, I think like, uh, well, I will, I will dare also to say that being Guru company, uh, like Avis in our side company, and, and this like a, a, another couple of small firms that uh, I think we all know that they are out there that um, are kind of playing a lot with technology and we are trying to mm -hmm. kind of like uh, try to push a little bit to the clients, show them new techniques, show them like yeah. a, a faster way. And I, and not because we don't want to be in a company, but because we have, I think we be, we have found that uh, we can actually give service to multiple companies that doesn't have the, sure. the massive that was scale. A huge but, motivator. Yeah. yeah like that, that's pretty much why I made BIM Guru. I wanted to be at more than one company at once um, with what I did. I looked at YouTube and I said, hey, I want that to be like how I work with people. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm able to be tapped into by anyone that's willing to, to do more complicated things and more interesting things than what the average company is doing, I guess. Um, and not to move at the same pace as just one company, um, but to move at my own pace and, and people can, can move with me, I can move with them. Um, I feel like that flexibility is just, just amazing to have. And, and for anyone that's, you know, working at a company right now, feels like they're not getting anything out of it, moving slow, don't, don't hesitate to think about consulting as, a, yeah. as an option for business because it, it's a very different way of approaching the industry, but oh gosh, it's rewarding. <laughs> like it's, yeah. it's just yeah. personally rewarding, financially rewarding, time rewarding. It's, it's, it's a great way to approach the market. Um, if the market's not working for you, I guess is, is yeah. what I tell people. Mm. No, mm. I, I totally, and to, to start like ending our episode today, uh, Gavin, like uh, mm. how important will be to be fully technological in the future? How do you oh, see this? It's a tricky one. I feel like it's going to be more important not to just be technological. That's probably okay. my, you know, creative um, sort of smart ass answer to it. <laughs> but I guess because um, <laughs> I feel like everyone's getting very, very software focused and sometimes they miss the picture of, you know, why are we using the software? What's it doing? What's the goal? Um, because at the end of the day, we don't go and build a digital building, really. We, we might make a digital twin, but that's still a digital twin of a physical asset. Yeah. Um, and that, that object is still really, you know, where most of the money gets captured. So I think um, it's worth just relating things back to not just the people using the software. Um, so understanding the site teams, the construction teams, how they work, um, better understanding how you can be involved with them. So going out to site and not just, you know, necessarily opening up a computer, um, but going to visit the actual details you're developing and the areas of the design you're coordinating. Uh, I think that's still like a very valuable skill set because builders only see a, a one side of the project really. They don't necessarily see behind the scenes and get that deep um, relationship with the design that we develop during um, during the coordination process, for example. Um, I think too, just um, still being a competent architect, engineer, project manager, builder beyond the tools is still really important. Um, so I think that we, we still need those soft skills. We still need to know how to communicate. We still need to know how to design. How to um, how to relate to people that aren't necessarily using software and tying why the software is important back to them and, and making them understand. So there's a lot of um, personal communicative skill sets that are required. Um, I think it's important to be technological in the way that we deliver and the way that we achieve solutions that we do. I think that without technology, people are going to find things really difficult in future. Um, they'll notice that the clients are less interested in their companies because they know that they're not going to get a, an interesting or an exciting outcome. Um, or they might not get something creative, cost-effective, modular. There's a lot of things that software can do in terms of rationalizing design as well to save money whilst delivering a very similar outcome. So I think that will be more where technology is going to tie a lot of value back to the clients. And maybe that's where a lot of the focus will shift towards in, in contextualizing it in reality. Because right now, a lot of technology is focusing on tomorrow, um, not necessarily on today. And I think maybe, yeah. maybe you know, technology needs to do a bit of both. Um, and I think that might be the way that, you know, technology is grounded back to the reality of the construction industry as well. Um, so I think it's important to be technological, but to understand why why you're being technological and also to, to, to find ways to engage with everyone that's not necessarily as technological as you are or, or technological in the same way, I guess, would sort of be my be my answer there, I guess. But um, but yeah, if, if you want to be technological, just go for it. Like there's, there's so much fun stuff out there you can do with technology now and it's only going to get more fun, yeah. um, only going to get more complex too. Um, I do I do feel bad for the graduates. There's so much to learn. Um, every day there's a new program and we're, yeah. we're not dropping programs. We're just adding more programs at the same. So it's hard, but, yeah, um, it's, yeah, but it's fun. Yeah, yeah. No, I completely, I, I also believe that... Uh, at the end of the day, the technological part of the of the of the projects is to create a reality. Like yep. uh, it doesn't matter. Like uh, like 
you can play with all that you want. Like you can do uh, like all these models, you can do all these digital things, you can do all these scripting, coding, and you will really enjoy it if you like it. But uh, mm. do not forget that uh, at the end of the day, AC is a construction. It's something that is supposed to be built. And uh, the main thing that uh, to, to have in mind is that uh, the analysis that you are doing, even if it's a sun analysis, wind analysis, if it's a generative design analysis or a modeling tool, whatever you're doing is to build something that you want you you are expecting to see in reality. And I mm-hmm. think that's that's something that is important to always have in mind because uh, just like you were saying, like going and, and and how can we assist the project manager, the the architect inside the 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 logistic operation for them like to make things faster easier simpler like better mm-hmm. naming system and whatever that you can do that uh doesn't doesn't really is not really involved just in do, using the software but actually to take this mm-hmm. this kind of like good part of the software so you can actually keep sharing with the rest of the of the team you know uh, yeah for sure yeah another thing I, t- I try to tell people is that i sometimes come across these people that say oh bim's just a tool it's just a pencil it's, just, it's, a, it's a new pencil and i'm like that's a pretty cool pencil like come on <laughs> so, <laughs> to try not be not to be too dismissive of the technology as well um because i feel like that's going to make it harder for people like that to engage with the, the wider teams that they work with um so that's the other side of the fence too if you're not necessarily technological yourself at least uh, try to engage and relate with people, and don't dismiss the technology as just another, just another pencil because it's, it's a pretty, it's a pretty funky pencil. <laughs> yeah, I think, I, yeah, Beam is. I think, uh, well, we do Beam as well here in Abyss, but I think Beam is just like uh, it's been evolving, it's been changing uh, uh, along all these years. But I think Beam, uh, it's something that has come to, to just just stay with us for a while. Like it's, it's a yeah, pencil sure. that uh, is not going to disappear. It still has many things that we can improve on it. I do believe mm-hmm. that uh, the the industry has to be even more global than it than, oh, uh, sure. than what it is right now. You know, I think yeah. I, I I dream with the day that uh, we have a uh, we have a uh, beam standards for the wall <laughs> instead of mm-hmm. just beam standards for mm-hmm. each country. You know, like yeah. I, it's uh, I think that's that's the next step for it. Mm, mm. When, when well, let's make it. let's make one and not make copies it seems like we have so many <laughs> copies of standards floating around yeah. i mean every time a new standard comes out i go this is another standard i'm not going to keep keep on top of yeah. <laughs> it's impossible <laughs> to crack them yeah. all but but yeah the uh, isos might potentially be the be the key maybe i find that they're still a little bit too process driven and not really they don't capture the reality of the technical challenges that are involved in implementing BIM on a project, but but I guess that's not really their goal. Um, they're more about making sure that information is exchanged in the right ways, but maybe even just talking about information formats would be a bit more helpful than just passing a, a information around as information. It's like, come on, what is that information? Come on guys, let's get specific. Um, so hopefully there'll be some developments on that front in the future that make it, make it more yeah. uniform around the world for how things yeah. are done, because we will see more projects where people from around the world collaborate now that we're all yeah. used to remote working, digital collaborations. So I think, um, yeah, that's very important heading forward. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to add to end the episode today, Gavin, like any advice that you would like to, to share with the audience? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I guess, um, most of our focus, I guess today has been around future um, so, you know, what, what is coming and how can you prepare yourself for it? But I think um, I like to remind people too that um, our industry is still, uh, it does move slowly. Um, it does need people to push it forward. So um, I, I do encourage everyone out there who is pushing our industry forward to keep doing so. But if you're not involved in that, maybe you're focused on just working at one company and you have bigger ideas. Um, I definitely encourage anyone listening to really think about alternative career pathways or uh, groups they can can be a part of, maybe like open source development communities. That there's so many places you can be involved in architecture yes. these days. For example, osarch.org is an example of a, yeah. a group of people developing open standards for for architecture. Um, so there, there's there's so many ways you can be involved. Even just like you know, I, I went on YouTube and started making videos. That was my that was my solution to to sharing knowledge. But um, but there's so many ways you can do it. So I just encourage people to be to be more involved. And also, if you have I guess any questions about career or BIM or architecture, I, I'm always happy to be contacted as well. So I have a, an email, um, aussiebimguru at gmail.com, um, which you can find on most of my videos on YouTube as well, if you if you need to see how to spell it. Um, and and um, you, you feel free to reach out to me. I get about seven or eight emails every day on that email probably, and I, I respond to all of them currently. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, sometimes they're very short responses, um, but yeah. So, um, so I think, um, yeah, just be involved and try to 
try to push the industry forward. Um, don't necessarily just keep doing what, what everyone is doing. Sometimes that's, that's not enough for the industry to change. But, um, but yeah, I think, um, I think we had a really, really fun discussion. I really enjoyed um, all, the, all the topics we covered and some really, really great sort of topics I don't, I don't hear spoken about often enough on not just podcasts, but just in general in the industry. Nice. So I really appreciate you having me on board. Um, Samuel, nice. and, uh, and I think it's a, it's a great, um, great podcast you're doing. And I look forward to sort of listening to some, some future episodes as well. And, um, and, and I've got another podcast to listen to on my, um, on my round. So it's great. Yeah. And, um, and keep up the great work with Arvis as well. Um, you know, it sounds like you're doing some really exciting things and I see you see you around social networks occasionally. So it's good to see what you're up to. And, um, yeah. Yeah. yeah and, and thanks for having me on board. I really appreciate yeah. it. Thanks for being with us today, Gavin. And, uh, it was great to have this discussion uh, today with you about what, what, how do we see the industry moving? Uh, how do we believe that people should work? What are the things that uh, we should worry about or maybe focus to for our career? So to the audience, uh, just like uh, Gavin was saying, if you want to contact him, don't don't hesitate on, on contact him. He's a great professional to the world, considering all the work that we have been seeing from him. So definitely, it's a it's a, a person and a company uh, that uh, can assist you to actually go beyond your ideas and help you to grow and improve the, the workflows in your company. So thanks again for being with us today, Gavin, and um, we're looking forward to see you in the future and uh, stay tuned for more episodes and uh, sharing more ideas of what's going on with the AEC industry, how everything is transforming. And um, thanks everyone.